Welcome to Notes from America. My name is Petrina Engelke, and frankly, I had no idea who the Buffalo Soldiers were. Do you? Well, you'll soon learn about them from this episode's guest, Dr. Carolyn Finney. For now, I'll just hint that there's a connection between the Buffalo Soldiers and the Great American Outdoors. Huh. Hmm. That doesn't come as a surprise, right? given that this is part two of my short interview series related to that very topic, the outdoors. This time I wanted to explore the complicated relationship between land, race and belonging in the United States, and that's a big chunk of Carolyn Finney's professional life. After all, she helps national parks, environmental organizations and outdoor retailers develop greater cultural competency. We recorded this interview in September. So joining me today is Dr. Carolyn Finney. She's a cultural geographer, an author and a speaker. She's currently doing a residency at the Franklin Environmental Center at Middlebury College in Vermont. And as if that wouldn't be enough, she also served on the U.S. National Park Advisory Board for eight years. And among the many things that she published, I want to highlight two, which is an article in The Guardian from this June called The Perils of Being Black in Public. And second, her book from 2014, which is called Black Faces, White Spaces, Both of those publications have subtitles, but, you know, I didn't mention them because too much spoiler alerts in that. So welcome to Notes from America, Dr. Finney. Yeah, thank you for having me here. So to start this off, I want to tell you a little bit about how I got to the questions that I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Um, I'm from Germany and I came to the U.S. 10 years ago. And what I first learned about the national park system was what to me looked like a simple but awe-inspiring concept. And in my words, that would be the most beautiful places in all of the U.S. shall forever belong to the people of the U.S. and be accessible and, and enjoyed by everybody, by every American And I was blown away. I was like, wow, that's a great idea. Then much later, I got the idea to look at the demographics of today's visitors in national parks. Uh, yeah, and what am I going to tell you? It didn't add up. It, it didn't connect to the concept. So I found a study by the National Park Service from 2014 where they compared their visitor numbers to the data from the 2010 census. And there were disparities all over the place in income, age, education. But what struck me most was 95% of the park's visitors were white, while only 70% in the general public are white. And while African-Americans in the 2010 census make up 13% of the population, Only 1% of the visitors in the parks were African-Americans. So, of course, as a journalist, now I want to know why. <laughs> and that's where you come into the picture. And from your book, of course, I learned there's not just one answer to that question. 
but can you still try to give us a little overview of the possible answers to that question? Yeah, yeah, I can try, Katrina. Um, yeah, so the the subtitle to the book, Black Faces, White Spaces, is reimagining the relationship of African Americans to the great outdoors. And it's hard for me to give you a short answer, but I can certainly kind of give you a broad answer. First, I have to say to people that my interest in writing the book and talking about national parks was less about national parks per se and more about understanding that national parks were originally created as a way to represent the United States to the rest of the world. We weren't like Europe. We didn't have old cathedrals and old buildings, right? But we had these beautiful outdoor spaces like the Grand Canyon and Yosemite. And so what better way to kind of represent who we are and what we aspire to be? So I think that that mission statement, that piece that you read there, Petrina, yes, it, it's a beautiful aspiration. And it's also a beautiful intention. That doesn't always actually address what is actually real, <laughs> both historically and what's been here today. The thing about the national parks, they don't exist in a vacuum. And when we talk about the environment in this country, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I think what a lot of your listeners may be seeing on the news about the United States, you know, the racial unrest, the Black Lives Matter movement, systemic racism, everything that's taking place, none of it is new. Absolutely none of it's new. It's been for 400 years. One of the things that I always say to people is, look, two things are true about the United States. And no matter how far we get down the road, we can't get away from it. One, all this land was stolen from Native Americans. All of it was stolen. And that includes the parkland. Two, we enslaved a group of people to work this land for free to build the backbone of our economy. Now, there's a lot of other things that I can say, but even if that's all I said, that actually shapes the way we think about land, space, the questions of diversity in this country, who counts and who doesn't. And again, parks are not immune from that. So um, we can look at numbers at who attends parks, but it only tells us a, a slight sliver. I mean, People can make a choice not to go to parks. Some of that can be economic. Some of that can be where you live. Some of that can be pure exposure and education. But those of us who look closely at this or have experienced it ourselves know it's also something deeper. Because it's not only who goes, visits the park, who works at the parks. You know, who gets to make this decision about how the parks are used? Who do we see in, engaged in the larger environmental conversation in this country? And it is still, by and large, predominantly white, though that is shifting over time. Um, something I want to say here also about this is, and I'm not saying white is bad. White is not bad. It's neither good nor bad, right? Nobody can help the skin that they were born in. But understanding that whiteness and the perspective of whiteness has been centered as the norm and the way we should live our lives here, as and that is related to national parks as well. Um, it's That's such a complicated question for me. There could be a, so many different reasons why we don't see people at the parks. One of the issues I always talk about is question of representation. And what I mean about that is it could either be who do we see on the staff who are the interpreters working at the parks, the superintendents. And you have a fairly diverse leadership in the parks. But still, when you talk about America in general, in terms of representative numbers, there's still some differentiation between Black folks of color and white people who work at the parks. So there's representation in terms of who we see and don't see. What are the stories that are told within the parks? 
And having served on the National Parks Advisory Board for eight years, I will say that they are working really hard to tell many, many more diverse stories about these places, right? But that hasn't always been true. And stories often... So imagine if you are African-American and you grew up with your parents and your grandparents in the South. And the Southern part of the United States has its own very particular and unique history. And you go visit a park site that used to be a plantation. Now, if it was a plantation in the South, the odds are pretty excellent that there were enslaved people living on that plantation at that time. So imagine you know this. You know this because of your, your history, your Black history. You have an awareness. Maybe you even have going way back, some relatives who might have been one of the enslaved on this plantation. And then you go to the plantation and you go to the park and there isn't anything talked about in terms of, you know, anything having to do with slavery, the enslaved, the plantation itself, why it was run that way. There was no stories about that. You heard other stories about it, but you didn't hear stories about that. Now that for me is an extreme example, but I think that for a lot of people, it's what stories do we tell about these park spaces? Yosemite is a perfect example. One of the stories around Yosemite back in the late 1800s was that you had a black group of soldiers called the Buffalo Soldiers, which were responsible for protecting the park at that time. For many, many years, Yosemite National Park never told that story. You would never know it. You would go to the park. It's stunning. It's beautiful. It wasn't until the African-American park ranger, Shelton Johnson, said, you know, why aren't we telling this story? And he, he now does a live performance. As a ranger, you can go there. And he pretends he's one of these soldiers and you're outside. And he, he does this whole sort of one-man show to talk about the experience of the Buffalo Soldiers. So some of it are, is little things, like what stories are told of places, but it's also who we see. And I want to say to you that, you know, and we've just, many of us have discovered this if we didn't know this already. When we look back at what happened back in late May, early June, when Christian Cooper, an African-American birder, went to Central... Oh, yeah, I want to talk about Yes. That. Well, this is, for me, is deeply connected. He's an African-American birder. He self-identifies as gay. He was going bird watching in Central Park in New York City. Um, this is a man that sits on the board of Audubon, one of the biggest and most recognizable environmental organizations in the United States. And he ran into a white woman named Amy Cooper who was walking her dog. Now, the rule is in the park that you should leash your dog because it could bother the birds and other wildlife in the parks, but she didn't have her dog on a leash. So she, he asks her pretty politely, but strongly to put her dog on a leash for that reason. And she didn't want to do it. And the rest is history. All of it's on video about how she got a little frenzied and upset. And, and instead of even saying, you know, for me, she shouldn't have even had to call the police at all. She threatened to call the police, but it wasn't just that she threatened to call the police. She weaponized his skin color against him. She told him that she was going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening her. That's very particular. She could have just said, I'm going to call the police and tell them that a man is threatening me. Or she could have said, I'm going to call the police and tell them that, this, that a person is bothering me. But she very particularly said, African-American, right? And for me, you know, I'm not saying Amy Cooper is a bad person. I don't know Amy Cooper, right? 
But what I will say that somewhere in her consciousness, like in the consciousness of this country, it's embedded in there somewhere, an understanding that black isn't as good as white, that somehow he had no right to say to her what he did, and he did have the right to do it, regardless of the color of his skin. And that by using the color of his skin against him, that she may be protected. I don't know, protected from what? Doing the right thing because she was in the park and putting her (laughs) leash on a dog, being told by a black person that she had to put her leash on a dog, you know? And this is what we don't know. What was it about that moment that threatened her, right? That threatened her autonomy and her sovereignty. So for me, I have many of those stories. I know lots of black people who have many of those stories throughout their lives. There was nothing surprising to me about what happened to Christian Cooper. What made it even, I think, a bigger story than it might have been at another time of the year was that it happened two days before the murder of George Floyd. And what I try to get folks to understand and what I talked about in the Guardian article is that both these instances, Christian Cooper having his skin weaponized against him in Central Park, George Floyd being murdered by a white policeman, are all related. They're on the same continuum. They're not two separate incidents that are different from each other in terms of their meaning behind them. They're on the same continuum. The difference is that one end of the continuum, you can be killed for being black in a public space. On the other end of the continuum, you just suffer this kind of insecurity about being black in a public space. It doesn't matter what you're doing, driving a car, bird watching in a park, walking down a street. You don't know how you're going to be seen, whether or not you will be welcomed, whether or not you will be um, singled out, whether or not you have no idea. This is life in America (laughs) for Black people for as long for my entire life, right? It doesn't mean you're not having a great time and thinking of other things and enjoying your life like everybody else, but it is an added concern because in my opinion, we've never fully addressed what has happened in our past, and how it has brought us to this moment in this particular way. Um, Addressing the past and the way that it leads here, I I think that is a very powerful, or could be a very powerful thing. And I mean, I know I'm from Germany, and Germany has always been praised for the way that we deal with our past. And, you know, I wouldn't even say that is particularly true because right now neo-Nazis are taking the streets in Germany. (laughs) But still, uh, back to academics and research, are there ideas out there right at this moment to address this particular thing, meaning how could America attempt to open up, get a discussion going or a dialogue going about the past and also the connection from the past to today's thoughts and behaviors, especially in white people, of course. Well, I want to say to you that it isn't only academics and research as somebody who you know, I've actually, I actually left full-time academia a couple of years ago and I'm doing this residency. It's part-time, but most of the time I spend my time in different parts of the country while well, pre-pandemic um, on Zoom now, having these conversations, running workshops, working with a wide variety of people who are not necessarily in academia. So the best ideas aren't necessarily going to come from academia, which doesn't mean 
I'm not trying to say there aren't great ideas coming from academia. I think we have to come at this from many, many different angles, whether it's academic research, whether it's the arts, whether it's community, grassroots efforts, activism. I think it's going to depend on us taking a multi-pronged approach. I love storytelling. Usually the first thing I say about myself is that I'm a storyteller because stories allow everybody to show up. Everybody's story matters. Everybody has a story. And there's a way that we can start to think about those individual stories as it's linked to the bigger narratives, the bigger stories, the story of who we are as a country, the story of where we come from, um, the uniqueness of each state in this country, and those stories that tell us who we are. And so for me, it is how do we get at that, that understanding, that reconciliation, that acceptance of and acknowledgement of, that responsibility to our past so that we can understand our present is going to come in all the different ways we tell those stories, whether we do it through research, whether we do it through science, whether we do it through the arts, museums. I'm in conversations. I mean, I the work I'm doing right now, I'm talking to museums, botanical gardens, um, student activist groups, uh, universities, outdoor retailing businesses. I mean, there are so many different people that are trying to work on that question. Part of how we also get there is the willingness of people in a position of power. And what I mean, let me just speak really plainly, are predominantly white individuals and groups who have resources, and that means money, uh, political connections, access, right, to be willing to do the work of change. Because that's what this is. I mean, you know, I, I believe we have the capacity to actually expand who we are and how we show up. In some cases, though, it's going to mean that we're going to have to get rid of some of the things we had before. And for some people, that's where a lot of the resistance is, this kind of fear of, well, if we get rid of that, that helps to tell me who I am. And that's how I'm able to show up and work every day. And what happens if we have to rethink that mission statement or change the structure of our company, or we have to hire a whole bunch of people I don't know? Well, what happens is, hopefully, is that we all get to expand and grow, but there's work to be done. One of the things I say to everybody, if you are comfortable, then you're not doing the work, right? Because there's nothing comfortable about this. And then the next thing I say to people is that folks who look like myself, most of us have never been comfortable. (laughs) So, you know, come on down. Like we can all be like that together because this is not about so, so basically we can all be uncomfortable for together yes for different reasons yes and and discomfort <laughs> isn't the same as being unsafe that's also on a continuum you know so when i look at that continuum again with christian cooper and george floyd there's a point when somebody's life is at risk i believe that that's the priority bottom line and you must deal with that immediately but at the other end of the continuum Christian Cooper's life for that moment, for what we understand, wasn't necessarily at stake, but there was a lot of other things that were. And that could have actually, that, that, that moment could have been exacerbated. That could have um, become something else. Unfortunately, it didn't become something else. Um, yeah. Right. She wasn't armed. She wasn't armed. But, you know, if she had called the police and they, they had come, they would have been. Yeah. We could imagine a, a lot of bad things and not because because I have a vivid imagination, but yes. because I have 
seen all those images because unlike you, you know, I can't experience it. I, I don't experience this. I only see media reports. I see those videos. I, I hear people talk about it. And, and I think that also touches upon something that you've looked into, which is representation in, in media, in popular culture, again, which is, I think, for most white people, the main source to even get aware of what's going on. So your book is from 2014, so a couple of years have gone, gone by. Have you seen any changes in the way that African-American experiences, especially related to being outside, has changed in magazines, in popular culture, in media reports? Yes. So I will say in the short answer is yes. I think about one of the, in the book, one of the magazines I talked about was Outside Magazine. And it's a really good um, magazine. It's been around for 25, 30 years where it looks at adventure travel and sometimes environmental issues, but it's really thinking about outdoor recreation and, you know, what's like to get out there in the world and be in the great outdoors. And for many years, actually, I had a subscription to the magazine because I spent the better part of five years backpacking around the world before I went back to school. And so I loved reading the magazine, but I rarely saw anybody who looked like me in there backpacking or doing anything interesting in, in other parts of the world. And so When I started doing this as research, I decided to look at 10 years of that magazine from 90, 1991 to 2001. And I literally wanted to count how many times we see African-Americans. And at the end of the day, I counted something like, I think there were 4,600 pictures of people. And out of all those pictures of people doing a wide variety of things, there I think I came up with there were only about 102 photos of African-Americans. And almost all of them were famous male black sports figures in urban settings. So that's very, very particular about who we see, even in gender, where we see them, what are they actually doing? There was very, very few, if any, stories of a black person doing something amazing, like backpacking. Like I went six months backpacking in East Africa on my own. I'm not saying it, it needs to be about me, but I wasn't the only one to do those things. But we weren't seeing those stories. Outside has actually been working hard over the last few years. I know they've asked me and others. We've written op-eds for them. They uh, believe it's been two years ago now. They put their first African-American on the cover. There was a, and actually not just an African-American. It was um, a, a number of folks of color, all young folks, recognizing that the game is changing. And how do we expand? You know, I'm always really clear. For me, it is not about erasing those other stories. You know, I'm as deeply moved by reading about a white mountain climber. You know, I spent time living in Nepal. I love the Himalayas. I was obsessed with mountain climbing. I never did any mountain climbing. I did trekking, but I love reading about it. And I'm just as moved by that white male individual taking those risks as I would be if there was someone who looked like me. But what I understand is, it's so they rarely talk about anybody who looks like me. And it's not because we haven't been doing it, <laughs> right? And that's, you know, really breaking in. You know, I always, the other thing I always say is people don't know what they don't know. So a lot of these magazines and advertising companies, it's not that they're made up of bad people. Sometimes they're made up of just predominantly white people who have had a very particular experience and they just don't see and don't know and they don't have to see. This is what I always mean by privilege, having the privilege of not seeing itself. 
when you have that particular kind of privilege where your worldview is considered the norm, where your worldview is at the center and everybody else has to assimilate and dance around it, you don't have to look at a different place and see anything differently because you've never had to do it anymore. That's why we had Oscars so white. That's why we've pushed back on Hollywood. That's why, I mean, in every sector, right, there has been pushback for a long time. It is only something about this moment where all of this is coming together in a very particular way. And the pushback has been sustained and strong and vocal in a lot of different sectors. Especially right now, as you said, after George Floyd, um, there seems to be a rising awareness among white people and lots of pledges from outdoor companies to environmental organizations to politicians. Then again, there are some people who who are a little afraid that this is just the spur of the moment. Everybody pledges, we're going to change something. And then again, nothing really will come out of that. What would you say is something that gives you hope in this respect? And what is something that also makes you a little concerned? Well, one of the things that gives me hope um, is that, I mean, this is what I do is full-time work. I don't go and look for work. I have to be invited in because this is, you know, I'm a black woman. And I said, if somebody, if a white, predominantly white group is going, wants me to come and have this conversation or think about how to work on this, they need to invite me. You know, I, I'm not just going to show up there. And while I've been working steadily for the last six years in particular, uh, the requests that I have have tripled. I mean, they have quadrupled actually, and I can't keep up with them. So at a real anecdotal level, I'm looking at just my own email mail inbox and going, what is happening? I can't keep up with the requests to, for people willing to say, we want to hire you to do this. Can you come and do this? Can you talk about it? So the interest is absolutely exploded and not just with myself. I have a number of friends who are black and brown who do this work in various contexts around the country, and we're all busier than we've ever been right? At this moment. Um, I think what we have to wait and see is how much of this is, is companies and organizations wanting to save face and keep their brand tight and just look good for the moment. And how much of this is understanding this is long haul change. There's no end goal here. You're not going to reach your diversity quota and then you're done. Actually, this is a process that never ends. This needs to be integrated. It's not about value added. You don't simply get to add a black person or do some great advertising once and you fixed it. Actually, it is ongoing all the time. You're looking at every aspect of your company and organization. You're doing an equity audit. You're doing an internal assessment individually about who you are and how you show up. And you're checking yourself every day all the time. And if people are starting to go, oh my God, that's exhausting. That's because it is. I am emotionally exhausted all the time. It's exhausting. All the And my black and brown friends who do this work, we're exhausted all the time. I am also incredibly passionate about this work. I'm grateful that I get to do this for work. I'm, I, if excited is the right word, I recognize what this moment is and how potent it is. What an opportunity for us to make different choices. I'm excited at some of the conversations I'm having with all kinds of folks. I just got off a conversation with a group of people in Ithaca, New York, people who are reaching out, people who are being really honest 
in a way that they haven't been before about who they are and where they are and what it is they want to do. People being called to um, lay it all down and saying, this is what it looks like. And it's really scary. But I believe that we can kind of collectively figure out ways to support each other and move forward because that's what we have to do. For me, it's, you know, at least for me, it's not optional. There's no option. I can't sit this one out. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, I mean, but for some people, I think they may feel that it's optional. and, And that's, I guess, their privilege. And that's their choice. But for a lot of us, there's nothing optional about this moment. So I'm, um, I, I, if I had anything that was concerned, it's just that, that there are those who might find it optional. And also I want to, okay, I have actually a couple of things to say. First of all, I understand that for some people, the most important thing right now is making sure that they survive, that they survive either from the pandemic either from being shot and killed, whatever it is, they must survive. They are living where they are living. They're dealing with what they're dealing with. Just because a lot of us have gotten louder about it doesn't mean it's changed for them where they are. And I think it's really important that the front lines are different for everyone. You know, for some front lines, it's about young folks who are able to get out and protest the street. And I'm all for it. Do it, do it, do it, and do it again, right? But that's not the only front line. For some, it's frontline in their community. For some, the frontline is daily, daily getting up and showing up anyway, knowing that the risk is huge. For some, it's how they write and what they write about. How do you use your voice? How do you use your gifts? How do you use your opportunities and your privilege to not be silent? Whatever that looks like for you. Um, I think one of, um, it's a concern, but I, and I say this gently, is that there you've got a lot of young white folks who are really i mean just let me say badass right they're doing their thing they're on the street and sometimes they're making choices for communities of color and individuals of color but they never actually asked those communities of color or those people of color if that's what they want and and so good intentions can have really negative impact right and so for me, it is how do we show up at those moments? That's where I have concern about young white activists, the meaning well, but doing something that has a negative impact on those they say they propose to help and be a support for. So how do we build better relationship and better communication? And again, to remember the front lines, it's not about being glamorous. It is not about how many times you get clicked on social media because you showed up with a fist in the air, which doesn't mean you shouldn't show up and put your fist in the air. It's just what do we prioritize as being most important? And sometimes, sometimes, for some of us, it means stepping back for a minute and getting our own house in order before we try to fix anybody else's house. And and for me, it's really figuring out those fine lines. And yes, we will all make mistakes. I make them. We all make them because we're human. For me, it is not the mistake that's the problem. It's our our willingness to be accountable for that mistake and still show up anyway. And so I'm interested in how we can continue to do that and how we can continue to support each other as we do that. When the cameras die down or they've turned and faced a different direction, the issue of systemic racism isn't just going to go away. 
It deserves our attention 100% of the time, which doesn't mean we can't continue to find joy and connection and passion in our lives, right? We just have to expand who we think we are so we can be who we say we want to be. Yeah, right. Um, I, I want to go back to the exhausting part. Uh, um, <laughs> not, okay. not, not, not immediately. Uh, um, it totally makes sense how, it, and, and you made a, a good point, how exhausting this is for you and a lot of people who do similar work. So my first question is, how can white people like me make that a little bit easier for you? I know we can't take away all the burden um, unless we find the magic wand or something, um, but how, you know, what can we do to, to, to make it a little less exhausting for you? Oh, that is such a great question. Actually, I believe you might be the first person to ask that question. I've talked, I've done a lot of interviews and a lot of talks in recent months. Um, I want to reframe that a little bit, Petrina, because I want to say that, I, I mean, I really appreciate the idea of making it less exhausting. Yeah, but if, I, I if I may interrupt, I, I'm, I'm, I'm especially looking at, I'm thinking, you know, you're talking to a lot of groups who want to do better. And I can imagine there are some things that come up again and again and again and get a little like, you're like, oh, come on, you maybe you could have figured that out by now. Or or there there's something that you can do ahead of time before you bring me in or maybe something like that. But now go yes, on. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, well, I still want to reframe it a little bit and mm -hmm. say that, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, right? So I will say I'm not looking for anyone to make it better for me. So what we want to be really careful of, and I know this is not what you're saying, but I just want to say this for those who are listening, that we don't perpetuate this kind of relationship where it is, you know, the white people are helping and the black and brown people are grateful and, you know, oh, I, help. Yeah. And I know that's not what you're saying, but sometimes it gets interpreted that way. So I just want to move that away for a second. I do believe that there is something about doing your own work around self-education. And that's also what I'm hearing you say, like what to come to the table before you come to the table or before you um, reach out though, so I'm going to take a different tact with that because I think that we have to be, we have to have the flexibility that we can do more than one thing at a time, that all of this isn't linear. So you may be working on being self-educated and being prepared before you invite someone who looks like me to sort of engage with you. I think that's great and perfect. And sometimes something happens that more needs to happen, you know, that you have to be doing multiple things at a time. So Jacob Blake gets shot seven times in the back. And you didn't have that in your plan. So should I be home self-educating first before I do or say something? Maybe not. Maybe you have to be doing both at the same time. Um, I think there is there's something to be said, though, for doing homework. I think there's something to be said for... So, so this is a, a more challenging part of the conversation. For groups that work with people who are African-American or are or, or, or brown, Latinx, are biracial, however they are, but are sort of claiming that space to do this work, compensation. And I, we've talked about it. It's part of equity, you know, in it as well. What does that mean? Or reciprocity. So let's think more broadly. So that's not simply a transaction. 
So if we really want to think broadly, the idea is, well, first, I'm just going to tell you, you know, to explain. Not in your case, Petrina, because this is a platform and this is you're giving me a platform. So there's some reciprocity here, right? I'm having a conversation here. But one of the things that's happened, not only to me, but others, is the sense that people want this information for free. They think it's just like, well, you're black, so you can tell us how to do this, <laughs> you know, because you've lived that you've lived the black life. So, to, you know, um, and say, no, actually, that there's an emotional cost. There's a psychological cost. You're asking me to come in and share what I known and developed and thought about for free. So let's talk about that because that's also what power looks like. <laughs> you know, this is you know problematic. So they can think about that. If you want something more than a transactional relationship, what does a relationship look like over time? This is not work you're going to fix once. You're going, you can open up some doors once. You can invite somebody in to give a talk. You can invite somebody in to be in conversation with you. That's great. It's a great place to start. Then what are you willing to do next? What's on you to do? Somebody wrote me long ago after hearing me talk, a white person, and they wanted me, they they had been on a call. They wanted me to immediately call them because they wanted to talk about what was happening in their neighborhood. It was an old white person and, she, and that she was struggling and she wanted me to what I call her. And I had talked about how I don't have any time. Like my, I can't just randomly pick up someone who just wants me to call and, and talk to me and, and listen to them for an hour. I mean, it's not that my kind heart wouldn't want to do that, but I simply have no space and that's exhausting. Because I could see what she wanted. And then she wanted me, could I give her any resources? Could I? And I was like thinking to myself, wow, you know, that's not my job. But in the end, I came up with a couple of resources and sent her an email where I um, obliquely said, you know, I'm really I'm thrilled that you're on this journey. Here's one or two resources to get you started. And I really support you in self-educating yourself. Whatever that looks like for you, there's, you know, if you have access to a computer and the internet, boy, you got it easy. You just got to start Googling, got to start reading. The reading lists are out there or they're getting formed or create one for yourself. Start a group in your own community to have this conversation. You don't always need somebody black and brown for every aspect of the journey to help guide you in the journey. Right. And that's a hard one because I think, you know, that for some white folks I've talked to, there's a nervousness that that they may feel like they don't have the information or they don't have the expertise. But what they do have is their own experience. And there's value in that. There's value in what does it mean to live an examined life? What does it mean? What does white privilege mean? What, what, do, what do I think it means? I mean, if I was a white person, what, what, what do I think that means? How can I do the work of self-healing around that without bringing all my stuff into the room when I'm in those conversations? What does it look like? And this is a hard one, to cede space to somebody of color when I've always had the space without diminishing who I am. This is where the work is hard, whether you're talking about an organization, a company, a group of activists in a community. What does a, a new kind of leadership look like? What does it mean to, I'm not going to be the one doing all the talking as usual, but I'm still going to be in the room, present and listening? What does it mean to take a different role, again, without diminishing who I am, you know, 
no one should be diminished. I don't believe that anyone has to be diminished in order for everyone to be heard. So if that's the case, what do, as you put it, Petrina, white groups and individuals, what can they be thinking about in terms of to make that shift in behavior and in practice? Yeah. Wow, that's great. Um, thank you. I've been wondering about, even even though, like I told you, uh, you know, I, I learn from media what's going on a lot, especially being holed up at home. <laughs> Um, um, there are still people who, who every single time say, ah, oh, that's just a singular event or the whole bad apple argument um, that's floating around. If you for a second try to look at that as a cultural geographer and, and imagine you want to examine that, what, what would you like to know about people who not just say that as, as some kind of thinly veiled excuse for not taking action, but who really believe that's just a singular event that is not our society. What would you like to know about those people or from those people? Um, well, I would, one of the things that I would know without them telling me is where they're from, where they live, where they're geographically located, something about their own story, how they understand race and racism? You know, what is it that they see? Sometimes the way somebody sees something is actually, um, they have a very different understanding of what that is. And I want to know why, why they think it's just about one bad apple. Why do they think that it's about solely about individual responsibility? I would ask about what do you, is there a role for the collective? Is there a way which, as a nation, since we're talking about the U.S., that we are all responsible for each other? Is that something that we prize? Is that something you prize? Or is it primarily about the individual? If you believe, oftentimes I find folks who believe that it's one bad apple, it sort of falls into that, you know, great American belief, and I think it's a bit of a myth, that we are all individuals and we, we prize individualism above everything else. And that if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, if you work hard enough, you will do what it is you need to do. And that for me is a big myth, which isn't to say there aren't a lot of people who've worked really hard to get where they are, including people in my family and I'm sure in your family. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it is there do you believe that there are other things at stake that help set the stage? We don't control everything. There's a history, there's a platform that we're all playing on at any given time. That platform is going to inform in some form or another our ability to show up fully as ourselves. It doesn't control who we are, but it certainly has some It certainly has a role in affecting who we are and how we show up. The idea that one bad apple can do one thing is it's though that they're isolated from everything else in life. And I guess I'd want to know, I, before I actually know anything about them, I would actually give a different story. I would set it up a little differently. And I, the kinds of questions I would ask, again, is how do they see themselves? tell me something of their own story. And that's as a person, less as a cultural geographer. I mean, I could talk about it as a cultural geographer and say that, well, that I would make some assumptions about the culture, 
that they claim in terms of their own ethnic racial background, their geographic location, you know, how they've grown up in terms of wealth or poverty, you know, what, just what they pursue, what's important to them, what are their values. I guess the most important question would be what is most important to you? You know, and just, you know, take it from there. So sort of meeting people where they are to really understand why they might look at somebody and say, well, that's got nothing to do with me. That's just one, as you said, one bad apple. And I start to start to actually draw the connections because the connections are always there. We're all interconnected, period, you know, in a lot of different ways. We can't get away from it, um, no matter how hard we might try. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I could go on and on picking your brain, <laughs> but I'm going to leave it at that. It gives me some hope. You gave me a lot of hope, actually, about about change. Because for me, you know, if you push reality aside for a second, the thought that Going outdoors just like that without any fear of your life or well-being or whatever, that doesn't seem like such a big ask to me. Basic rights, human rights, that shouldn't be such a big ask. I want to live in a world that works like that and in a country like that. And I think you just pointed out quite a lot of things that people can take away for the question, where do I start? Where do I start to make the world this way? So thank you very much for that and for your yes. time. And how we can um, expand our ability to see ourselves in others who don't look like us. For me, that's, you know, this building a relationship across difference in part. Um, one of the great blessings for me growing up black in this country And in the circumstances that I grew up in is that I actually can see myself in just about anybody. Because in some ways I've had to, because when I've never seen anybody who looks like me when my younger years, you know, <laughs> I had to be able to look at all kinds of people and imagine the possibilities for my own life. And so now I see that as a great gift. Actually, it's a skill. So I can look at anybody and be engaged with anybody. It doesn't matter how old they are, what color they are, what part of the world they're from. And I can find something in there that I can connect with. Because what, what is always true for all of us is our common humanity. It's always true. That's what I would say. The last thing I would say to people is how do we continue to build our ability to do just that? to reach across difference and see ourselves in anyone. Yeah, sounds like a lot of communication um, is uh, coming at us. <laughs> communication and the, the willingness to be vulnerable and be really radically vulnerable and open. Okay, wow. Uh, Carolyn? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, so much um, for your time. You're welcome. Um, You're welcome. That was a really, really great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.